And now, if you would, open your Bibles to the book of Micah. And if you have to go to uh, the tabs in your Bibles, that's all right, we won't judge. If we hear the crinkling of gold leaf as it cracks, once again, we won't judge. I know that the minor prophets are places we are not typically familiar with, although maybe Jonah. And last week we finished the book of Jonah, and it, it hinges on and it lingers with that unanswered question, because we don't know if Jonah got it. Uh, we don't know, I, I anticipate, I prayerfully hope that he did understand that, that his heart was moved toward compassion like God's heart was moved toward compassion. But the question that hangs at the end of that book wasn't for Jonah, at least not only for Jonah. It wasn't for Israel, or at least not only for Israel. That question, should God not have tender mercy and compassion on those who don't deserve it, that lingers with us. So the question really remains, what are you going to do with the sovereign grace of God? Knowing what we know about God, knowing what we know about God in his response towards sin, knowing what we know about God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, what are you going to do with that knowledge of God? Because it is not enough to simply know about God. Uh, that good news calls for a response. And today we're going to move on toward the book of Micah. And this little book is not well known, uh, but it has truths that are going to help us understand the plan of God for his people and uh, for the nation. So as we open up Micah, I'm going to read the first three verses to set the stage for where we go today. Micah chapter 1 verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him, the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. Let's pray. Lord, as we read uh, the opening verses, we're reminded that the Lord visits people in judgment. Uh, that as we've seen through the minor prophets over and over again, you are a holy God and you take sin seriously. And Lord, I pray that we wouldn't become uh, callous to that message, uh, that our hearts wouldn't be hardened or even burdened uh, by the fact that sin is a frequent topic in your word. Uh, in fact, Lord, it is a grace that you mention sin as often as you do, because as often as you point out our sin, we have the opportunity through your grace and mercy to repent and to turn. And so today we pray that you would open our eyes. Lord, open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Our sin darkens us, it blinds us, it hardens our hearts, and in our flesh we would be content to live in that darkness. But Lord, through the power of your spirit, you break through, you enlighten us, you bring us understanding. And Lord, through the power of that same Holy Spirit, you give us the ability to obey. So Lord, make us doers of the word and not only hearers. And we recognize that in our weakness, we are wholly dependent on you for all of that. To hear, to understand, and then to obey. And Lord God, you are faithful to save sinners. So as we open your word, help us to understand, to do, and then to rejoice in the salvation that you offer. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to ask a, an odd question. It's not an odd question. It's an important question, but we don't ask it often. And that is, what is guilt? We've been talking about sin, which means we've been talking about guilt. And as we open up Micah, we're going to see these kind of courtroom references and language all the way through. So what is guilt? 
And I ask that because in our world, in our society, and particularly in our culture, guilt is a feeling. And not only is guilt a feeling, but guilt is a feeling that we are told we should flee from. That there are that we should do everything we can not to feel guilty because, let's face it, no one likes to feel guilty. And understand this, there are absolutely things that are inappropriate to feel guilt about. But at the core of it, guilt, we have to understand, is not a feeling. Guilt is a situational and positional reality. Either you have done something or you have not, feelings aside. And where you've missed the mark, where you've crossed the line, where you've transgressed, where you've sinned, where you've failed, wherever you've, whatever you want to describe it as, guilt is not only natural, it's appropriate. And as we try to cover what is uncomfortable, we lose the understanding that sin should not be comfortable. That that horrible, nagging, guilty feeling is not something to be covered over or ignored. It's a grace of God that ought to prod us back toward repentance. Israel heard a lot about sin, but Israel wanted nothing to do with guilt. Israel did their best to cover over the guilt. Uh, they, would, they would ignore it through pursuing their own pleasures, their own passions, uh, their own fleshly lusts, and we'll see that today. They would cover over their guilt with this false uh, kind of external worship uh, to kind of slake their conscience. But of course, we know that that did nothing to actually appease God, nothing to actually please God. But Israel wanted no part of a message that made them feel bad about what they're doing. And I want to make sure that we're not those same kinds of people. That sometimes God's word firmly and intentionally crushes our toes and makes us feel extremely uncomfortable. And that when it does, it gives us the opportunity to respond rightly. And so as we go through Micah, I I want us to see the justice of God in a way that makes us think carefully about our own sin. Because like Israel and like Judah, if we respond rightly to our sin then we get to see God work in that miraculous patience and grace and restoration that he promises. So for today, we're going to begin with the context of Micah. We're going to look at kind of the background and the introduction to the book, and then we're going to look at uh, the collapse that God talks about in the first two chapters. So that's the goal for today. So we're going to start off uh, by opening up the context and first of all, answering the question of who. Who wrote the book and who is it written to? And once again, verse one, it's very helpful in figuring that out. It says, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth. Now, again, the word of the Lord is very important. Like Micah and like all of the minor prophets and like all of scripture, ultimately, this is the word of the Lord. The ultimate author of scripture is the Holy Spirit. He moves in men. He uses their particular grammar, their language, their historical setting, uh, their own style. But every word that is on the pages of your Bible is God-breathed. It is inspired. And there is a power and an authority behind it that does not come from a man, not even from a prophet, but it comes from God who spoke these words into existence. But God speaks this word through a man named Micah of Moresheth. And uh, Micah is from this town, and you'll see it here on this next slide. Moresheth is there just southwest of Jerusalem. It's uh, often associated with Moresheth Gath, Gath being a slightly larger city right next to it. And Micah doesn't come from a place of wealth or influence. This isn't the capital city. This isn't a major center. This isn't a place where you might expect a prophet to come from. Uh, And that's really all that we know about him. 
uh, we only know that this is where he's from and that he was willing to speak a message of judgment and warning to a people who were very content in their sin. We can also ask kind of who he's writing to. Micah, obviously, they are there from the southern kingdom. And the next slide is going to be very, very familiar to you, I hope, by this point. Uh, not many churches are as good at geography as you guys are, and that's a good thing. Uh, remember, after Solomon, the kingdom is divided. And uh, you have the northern kingdom with the capital in Samaria. And that is that yellow circle there just above the eye in Israel. And in that northern kingdom were ten tribes. Those ten tribes were ruled over by a series of kings, not from the line of David. And none of them were good. Wicked king after wicked king. They set up idols in Bethel and Dan for the people to worship. They no longer went back to Jerusalem to worship at the temple, to celebrate the feasts and the festivals like they should. And uh, we know that Israel, that northern kingdom, is carried away by Assyria in 722 B.C. That southern kingdom is called Judah. The capital is there in Jerusalem. That's made up of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And in that southern kingdom, you have a series of kings that are descended from David. Some of them were good kings. Many of them were still wicked kings, but the southern kingdom uh, remains longer and they stay around until 586 BC when Babylon comes in and conquers them. And, and the word of the Lord, it says, comes to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So that's the area that we're talking about. And these are the things which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Which again, if you look on that map, there are those two big cities. He's highlighting the capital of the northern kingdom and the capital of the southern kingdom. He is speaking to the places of influence and power because that is where the influence for spirituality would go from the kings, from the priests, out toward the people. And as we work through this prophecy, chapter 1 is going to initially deal with judgment that's going to come on Samaria, on that northern kingdom. But then the vast majority of the book deals with Judah and Jerusalem and the southern kingdom. So that's kind of the who wrote it and who he wrote to. Um, now we can also ask the question of when did he write? Some of the minor prophets, remember, we've had kind of a difficult time fitting into a timeline because not much information is given in the book itself. Um, Micah tells us just about exactly when he wrote. He says, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So we know the reigns of the men that he prophesied during, and those three names we're probably not all that familiar with, uh, but it's an example of that alternate kind of between good king and bad king. Uh, Jotham was a good king. If you read 2 Chronicles 27, it says that he did what was right in the, side, in the sight of the Lord. Uh, but his son, Ahaz, not so much. Ahaz was a wicked king. Ahaz was a desperately wicked king. You read 2 Chronicles 28, he said, it says he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. And remember, if the kings of Israel are all bad, if you follow after the pattern of the kings of Israel, it is not a good thing. So he's wicked. Uh, he makes metal images, it says. He, he was so bad that he offered his sons up as burnt offerings to pagan gods. And because of that, the land suffers under his rule. Uh, he is repeatedly raided by uh, Syria. Uh, the northern kingdom actually comes in and takes hundreds of thousands of people captive as the nation kind of wars against itself. Uh, he gets to the point where he's so desperate that he takes some of the treasures out of the temple and sends it to Assyria, and he asks Assyria for help. And when Assyria hears that uh, Judah needs help, they come in and they start picking on Judah as well. All he did was let him know that he was weak and that it was ripe for plundering him. And at all of this, when the trouble comes on him, uh, instead of returning to the Lord, 
instead of repenting and confessing and turning back toward God who could help him, he actually hardens his heart even more. And he says that the God of Israel isn't helping me, so I'm going to turn to the idols of the nations that are conquering us. So he actually shuts down. He bars the doors of the temple. He closes down the temple worship, and he sets up altars in high places to all the pagan gods of all the lands that were coming in to defeat him. So he took what brought them to destruction in the first place, and he moved them even further that way. He was a very wicked king, and he wound up being kind of a plague to his people. And finally, we read about Hezekiah, and 2 Chronicles 29 says that Hezekiah does what is right in the sight of the Lord. Hezekiah opens the temple, he cleans it out, he restores worship there. Uh, He has the people celebrate the feasts and the festivals that they have. And he even sends messengers into the northern kingdom of Israel, and he invites Israel to come and celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. Not to join the nation, but simply to have them come and participate in right worship again. And the response is mixed at best. Uh, All that to say that we can actually take the reign of those three kings and and we can give a date of around 735 for his writing. Now, in your bulletins, you have that timeline of the minor prophets because I don't know about you, but I don't have the timeline memorized on my own. I'm not that smart. So we continue to hand this little tool out for you at the beginning of every minor prophet book. And and if you kind of look at that, it's interesting because you can see that he writes at the same time that Hosea is prophesying to the northern kingdom. Remember Hosea, where we started this whole journey through the Minor Prophet, talking about the absolute infidelity and adultery that Israel is committing. And he writes alongside Isaiah in the southern kingdom. So he's prophesying alongside two major voices, and you can kind of see where that's happening. So why? Why is he writing? Uh, Like we've seen with most of the Minor Prophets, you can probably guess that the theme is sin and judgment and restoration. And you'd be right. He's writing to warn God's people that their sin is not being ignored, uh, that God sees what his people are doing. He writes to warn them about a judgment that is coming, a just judgment. Again, he he uses this very legal type language to show that what is coming is not random. It, It is not just violence for violence sake. It is the justice of God that is rightly poured out when his people reject their covenant obligations. He does that in a really unique way. Uh, He does it in a way that highlights the faithfulness of God. It it highlights the character of God as he does these things. And Micah is kind of the first one of our minor prophets where as we read through, uh, our minds are going to be brought back to some of those very specific prophecies about who Christ is. Because as Micah writes about the restoration, not only does he write about a king who is coming, he begins again, for the first time in our Bibles, to start to fill in details about what that will look like. So we're going to look at those passages that point us directly forward to Christ. And as we understand those details, that background, however brief it is, then we can begin to open up the book of Micah itself. And the first two chapters outline this collapse that is coming. Uh, Because of the sin, uh, God is going to outline the utter destruction and collapse of the nation. And we're going to spend the next three or four weeks going through this prophecy that Micah gives. And again, a lot of it's going to be familiar. Uh, You're going to see a lot of language that is common to all of the minor prophets. And I don't want us to get kind of fatigued by that, although I understand that it's natural. Um, For one thing, I want us to go through these things, and even in order, because we're just not that familiar with them. Uh, One of the benefits of this is, again, we are kind of cracking open some of those pages that many of us simply don't have 
the knowledge of the content of. Uh, I'm not sure many of us could tell the flow and the form of Micah or Nahum as we go through these things. And there's great value in knowing that because God has said that every word of Scripture is given for our benefit. Uh, But more than that, if we were to pull out the minor prophets, even pieces and parts of the minor prophets, we would have major gaps in our understanding of significant theological themes. We would lose sight of what God meant when he talked about the day of the Lord, and we would have to kind of make up ground as we got to the New Testament that begins to fill in what that looks like. We would lose this significant piece of God's faithfulness in dealing with his people, even in justice. We would lose a significant amount of our understanding of the promise of what restoration is going to look like, how God is going to move to restore his chosen people, Israel, and his chosen ruler, a son of David, and the nations as they are associated with Israel. All of those things are major components of the minor prophets. So, uh, I hope you see beyond the consistent warnings and onto the wonderful truths that God has preserved for us. And as we open up chapter 1, we open up with God's kind of indictment against his people, his opening arguments, his opening statements against his people. And the first thing that gets outlined is the wrath of God that is coming against sin. Look at verse 2. Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. So God is calling all the nations together, again, this kind of courtroom setting where they will witness. And in fact, he will stand as a witness against his people. He is going to speak of their guilt. But the nations are called to watch because the fate of the nations is directly tied to the fate of Israel. Yahweh is the God of Israel, and he will deal with the sins of his people, but he is also the God of the nations. And if God will deal with the sins of his chosen people, then how much more so will he deal with the sins of the whole world? And the picture that we get here is this kind of falling down, this coming down, this judgment coming from on high. God starts in his temple And he is coming out of that place and he's going to come down and tread on the high places. He's going to crush the mountains. And I think it's probably kind of a double reference, mountains being physically high places. But again, remember that Israel puts up these high places, these altars to all these pagan gods, really, at every opportunity they get. And so it's this way of saying God is going to come down in judgment, not only on the physical earth, but on the spiritual powers that they had placed there. Verse 4 says, the mountains will melt under him. The valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down from a steep place. And again, you get that kind of visual imagery, this overflowing judgment rolling downhill. And if you've ever seen a bunch of water from a flash flood coming downhill, it's this terrifying thing that moves quickly and massively and sweeps away everything in its path. That's the picture that he is painting of God's judgment, this unavoidable, powerful wrath that is coming And beginning in verse 6, he directs that towards Samaria. He says, Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour down her stones in the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images will be beaten to pieces. All her wages will be burned with fire. Her idols I will lay waste, for from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. There's a lot there. God highlights judgment on Jerusalem and on Samaria, but as he opens up this promise to Samaria, this pouring down of judgment is going to come and level her. 
uncovering the foundations, the idea of removing uh, the buildings that are on top of there, this picture of kind of complete destruction and complete devastation. And again, if you look at verse 7, the idea of the carved images, the idolatry being done away with, and the fact that he links those to adultery, to infidelity in marriage, is important because remember, he's writing at the very same time that Hosea is speaking. The people of Samaria, the people of the northern kingdom, the people of Israel in general are being given these warnings from multiple places. Again, so often we read God's word and we kind of, it's hard for us to see the forest for the trees sometimes, but understand that he's not prophesying in a vacuum here. He is speaking in concert with other voices from God that are continually calling his people back to repentance because of what's coming. But their spiritual idolatry is pictured in the same way that infidelity in marriage is, and that's a very common theme, again, especially as you link it to Hosea. But as we come to verses 8 and 9, the response is mourning. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches, for her wound is incurable. As Micah As God looks at the northern kingdom, he describes the wound as incurable. The sickness that has penetrated Samaria and Israel in the northern kingdom is beyond cure. Not because God can't forgive, but because the people have no interest in repentance. Their hearts are hard, and we know that there is no turning in Israel. There is no repentance. There is no softening. There is no restoration. They go from bad to worse to devastated. And again, in 722, Assyria comes and completely wipes them out. Their their end is certain. But look at the next line. He says, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. The sin of Israel is pictured like this disease, like this infection that has now crept its way right up to the gate of Israel, or right up to the gate of Jerusalem. And what's he saying? Judah, pay attention. If the disease that killed Israel has got a hold of you, you can only expect the same prognosis. If sin killed Israel, sin will certainly kill Judah. And the fact that they are about to watch and witness the devastation of Israel ought to serve as a wake-up call to those people in the southern kingdom. In the final seven verses of chapter 1, really the rest of chapter 1 and the bulk of chapter 2, are judgment that is going to come on Judah if they don't repent. And indeed, the rest of the book, Samaria is still there, it's still in view, but the focus now shifts from the incurable Samaria to Judah with the opportunity to repent. And as we go through those last seven verses in chapter one, as you read through there, and maybe you read through there this week, again, I would encourage you to read through the minor prophets the week before we go through them. What it looks like to us in English is a collection of kind of scattered random cities and random warnings or phrases that go along with them. And that's because we lose something in the translation there. Uh, Each one of these is set up with wordplay in these verses. The name of the city is tied to the warning or the command or the call. Uh, there's a lot of puns and, and imageries, and uh, we reserve puns for like really bad dad jokes. But as you look at these last seven verses here, it's this really powerful poetic way that the prophet uses to picture what is coming. And, and 
verse 10 and verse 16 have this, this kind of inclusio, this thematic bonding that's going to be really important. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, tell it not in Gath. And in Hebrew, tell and Gath kind of sound alike, but there's a bigger connection there. It, it looks back in Israel's history. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, Saul is dead. And David mourns over the death of Saul. He says, how the mighty have fallen. He says, tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad. And so if you are of this mindset, if you know the history of your people, as soon as Micah says, tell it not in Gath, your mind goes back to, wait, somebody said that before. David said that at a time of mourning in the nation's history, and Micah is now introducing a new time of mourning in the history of his people over their sin. Weep not at all. In Bethlehaphra, roll yourselves in the dust. Bethlehaphra means house of dust. And the inhabitants are told to roll in the dust. Once again, a sign of mourning. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, and in nakedness and shame. Shafir means beautiful, but they're going to be brought out in nakedness and shame. The next city, Zenan, means to go or to come out, but the people are told not to come out. The lamentation of Beth Etzel means a city that is close by, but he says it will be taken away from you, its standing place. The idea that what was close by is going to be removed. In the next verse, the inhabitants of Maroth, Maroth means bitter, although they wait anxiously for good, there is bitter disaster that is coming down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Verse 13, harness the steeds to the chariots, you inhabitants of Lachish. Lachish is a really important military city. It's often fortified when the kings are strong to keep a watch over that approach to Jerusalem. The city name, if you pair it with the word for steeds there, there's this alliteration that happens. But now this important military city where you would harness up chariots for battle, now those chariots are harnessed so that they can run away. It's the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Verse 14, therefore you shall give parting gifts or a dowry to Moresheth Gath. Moresheth, Micah's hometown, sounds like the word for betrothed. Normally you give gifts, a dowry to the betrothed. Now he says you're going to be given parting gifts. You're going to give it, be given gifts as they go away. There's this departure that's coming, not a joining together. The houses of Achzib shall be a deceitful thing. Achzib means deceit to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Merashah. And Merashah sounds like uh, one who conquers or one who overcomes, a possessor. And now that town is going to be conquered and possessed by someone else. And it says, the glory of Israel shall come to Adalam. And that doesn't mean much to us, but Adalam is the place where David fled when he was running from Saul, who was seeking his life. See, David's name isn't mentioned at all in these verses, but if you know the history of Israel, if you're tied into the workings of God among his people, this section begins and ends with a reference to David, but it is not David in power and glory, it is David in humility and mourning. The kings of Israel, the kings of Judah, those of the Davidic line are not coming into a time of power and blessing through this really intricate, poetic, uh, vivid way Micah says that the house of David is coming to a time of destruction, hiding, and humiliation. So what's the response? Make yourselves bald. Cut off your hair. For the children of your delight, make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Mourn, because judgment is coming. 
And again, we read through that, and it's this random collection of cities and towns, uh, but God has built such beauty and intricacy into his word. Uh, I love things like that. Uh, we need to go through the prophets to see that God tells his people in any way that they might listen about what is going to come. And as we move on into chapter 2, Micah moves from the destruction that's going to come uh, to the reason behind that destruction. Look at verse 1. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. The pictures of the people who lie awake at night and they just think through the various evil things that they could do. And it's not that they're lying there thinking, how do I be the most evil person that I can be tomorrow? What they're doing is they're lying there thinking of how to fulfill their own desires. The problem is they don't see that as evil. They're plotting, they're scheming, they're planning to satisfy their lusts. It falls on such hard hearts that they don't even see the real evil that that is. And in their wickedness, they do whatever they want because it's in the power of their hand. They assume that if they have the ability to do it, then it must be right for them to do it. What do they do? They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man and his inheritance. They covet that word that's meant to bring them back to the Ten Commandments. I mean, if you didn't know anything else, you knew the Ten Commandments. And the very last one says you're not supposed to covet. You're not supposed to want what other people have. Why? Not just because it's not nice, but because it's a direct affront to the character of God who said he would give you everything you need. The God who abundantly supplied all of your needs. And for you and I to covet something that someone else has says either God has not given us enough or we don't trust God to provide us with what we need. Either way, it's a tremendous moral failure. And he says these people, they're coveting other people's fields and houses. And they'll oppress a man and his inheritance. And the idea of taking an inheritance away by force is a big deal. Again, not just because it's not nice, but because the inheritance of the land is so intricately built into the personhood of Israel. As they came into the promised land, the land was divided up. God gave each tribe an allotment, a tribal inheritance. And as they would move into those areas, lots were cast and families would be given pieces and portions of that as an inheritance. There was no one who did not have a place in the promised land of Israel. And even if you bought or sold land, even if you got so desperate that you had to sell off a piece of your inheritance, every 50 years in the year of Jubilee, it was supposed to reset back to those family inheritances, which meant that nobody was destitute from generation to generation if the people were obedient. So as they say that they are robbing people of their inheritance, it's actually violating the kind of covenant faithfulness that God even built in to the physical possession of his land. They are attempting to take what God in his sovereign design gave to their brothers and their sisters, but God is making their, his own plans. Look at verse 3. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. You lie awake on your bed, and you plan evil. God says, I've got designs on my own. And my plans are for disaster, not because I'm cruel, but because you are stubborn and rebellious. And because even in your pride, you won't be able to stand against what's coming. And, and here's where knowing about the land matters. Because look at verse 4 and verse 5. It says, In that day they will take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. 
To an apostate he allots our fields, therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Now he's talking about lines and allotments and fields. Those same words that were used to describe the giving of the land, God now says that's all going away because I'm going to remove it. Why? Because it was his land to begin with. It never actually belonged to them to do as they saw fit with. It was always his land that they were supposed to hold as an inheritance in faithfulness to him. And now they say that God is changing the portion of their people as he removes the land. But in reality, God is simply doing what is right with what is his. To an apostate, to an outsider, he will give the fields that were allotted initially to his children. You will have none to cast the line by lot. Uh, When they would divide the family lines, you're not even going to have anyone to stand to be a representative in the allotment of the land. And we might expect that this promise, this, this warning, would kind of bring the people to a sense of sobriety, uh, maybe a, a second thought about what they're doing, but look at their initial response in verse 6. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. The people say, don't talk like that. We don't want to hear about that. Don't tell me I'm guilty. Don't tell me that I'm wrong. Don't talk about judgment and destruction. Nobody wants to hear about those things. After all, this can't happen to us. God wouldn't do that to his people in his land. But Micah challenges that. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? Basically, he says, isn't this exactly what you need? You hate the warning, but isn't the warning exactly what you need? If you are truly interested in right worship, if you are actually interested in what God has planned, then even correction and warning are a blessing. Israel wanted to hear the good things. And we'll see that again in a minute. Israel didn't want to hear anything about their sin. But Micah says, if you were actually interested, if you had any spiritual sensitivity at all, then you would rejoice at these warnings because they tell you how to be righteous, how to be upright. But the people aren't interested in worship or righteousness. They're not friends of God. Verse 8, but lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You stripped the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Men, women, and children you oppress, you rob them all, whether it's robes or houses or the, the glory of God that you mar, the inheritance of the children. You're willing to take it all away. And because the people are so wicked... Because they have come to this place of wickedness and rebellion, uh, there's really only one command left that's fit for them. Verse 10, arise and go, get up and get out, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. The promised land was supposed to be a place of rest. The people came out of 400 years of slavery, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. The promised land was always pictured as a place of rest. It's called a place of rest in Deuteronomy and in the Psalms. The author of Hebrews picks up on the idea of a promised rest. But this land isn't fit for a rest for them anymore. It's so polluted with sin. It's so unclean that it's only fit for destruction. 
See, here's the reality is that sin does not lead to rest as much as we like to think that it does. Proverbs says the way of the sinner is hard. God's blessing, God's peace cannot be expected where sin is tolerated or celebrated. Israel expected rest while she was locked into her sin. How often do we expect rest or find anger and frustration that we can't find rest while at the same time we tolerate sin? So, you know, in fact, it's so bad at this point that there's only one kind of prophet that the people will listen to. Verse 11. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. You know what kind of preacher you want? The one that's going to tell you about the wine and the beer and the booze. You want the one that's going to tell you how to deaden your senses. You want the one that's going to tell you how to distract your heart and your soul and your spirit from what God is actually trying to prod you with in guilt. You want to hear from someone who tells you comfortable things, pleasant things, distracting things. You don't want to hear anything from anyone who will bring you to the uncomfortable reality of dealing with your sin. That is the only kind of prophet that you would see fit to listen to. That's what the people want. Someone who will tell them anything that will allow them to ignore their sin and carry on in what they're doing. And after two chapters that outline the guilt of the people, Micah takes a hard right turn right there. It is shocking and unexpected, so much so that some people say that this is kind of either an unintended addition through a later editor or that this isn't from Micah at all. Because verse 12 suddenly begins to talk about restoration. Now, if you're in the courtroom and you're making your opening arguments and you are the prosecuting attorney, you do not begin to talk about the time off for good behavior in your opening arguments, do you? You don't start to talk about the restoration that will happen at the end of the judgment and the sentence, no. You want to establish the guilt and ensure that that's carried out. But here, before God is even done condemning the sins of his people, he brings them back to this promise of restoration that is going to come. The opening arguments of God don't end in judgment. They end in mercy. The judge is going to start talking about restoration. Look at verse 12. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. Now read those two verses back to back. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for you people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. You don't want to hear it. But Israel, I have a plan. I'm going to assemble all of you. Judgment is coming and judgment is going to scatter them. It's already talked about exile and removing them from the land, how the land is not a place of rest, but he says that he is going to assemble them to call them back. Jacob, the remnant of Israel, and that he will set them together again. We have seen this through the minor prophets. The idea that there is a time coming when Israel and Judah are reunited, when they are seen again as one people. This has not happened historically. When they are brought back together and seen as one people, and they are called the remnant of Israel. And when you and I think of remnant, we think of the leftover bits at the very end that nobody else wants. But when God talks about this remnant, now in Micah, we start to see that they're going to be like sheep in a fold, like flock in, its, in their pasture, a noisy multitude of men. 
this remnant isn't just straggly leftovers. God is going to rebuild a powerful people, not because they're great and because they deserve it, but because God is going to establish strength where there was only weakness before. And they're pictured like his sheep, like his flock in the fold, in the pasture. Remember, the land is no place for rest. The fold and the pasture, those are the places where the sheep rest. God is going to take their sin, which has led them to turmoil, and he's going to bring them to a place of restoration and obedience, which will actually bring them rest. Rest that only comes through a right relationship with him. And look how he closes chapter 2. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. Israel is going to follow a shepherd who opens the gate for them. And what do we find out about this shepherd? Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. When the sheep return, it's under the care of one shepherd. And this shepherd is a king. And the king is none other than the Lord himself. After so many years of fallen and failed kings, after generations eventually without a king over the people at all, after the exile, after the return, a people without a ruler, without a king, there's going to come a time when the Lord will return and restore and rule over his people. And in the coming chapters, Micah is going to move on and give some really precious details about what that king looks like and what the nature of his kingdom is like. As we close today, I want to consider something that we don't always, and that's I want to see the result of this prophecy. I want to think through how the rebels respond. We just came off the book of Jonah. And the book of Jonah, the warning of God goes out to a pagan, idolatrous, violent people. And out of all the people on earth that we would assume would never respond, Nineveh responds. They hear about the coming judgment and they humble themselves, they mourn over their sin, and they cry out to the Lord and the Lord spares them. And it's kind of this shining uh, example of what it looks like to return to God after a warning. And we see that kind of in juxtaposition set up against the hardness and the rebellion of Israel. Because where Nineveh of all people gets it, Israel refuses to. And we know that Assyria wipes them away. And we know that eventually Babylon comes in and wipes away the southern kingdom. We wonder, do God's people ever get it? Is there ever a time when anybody actually does listen to a prophet? Well, one of the wonderful things about Micah is Micah was actually a prophet that people listened to. And that's something we might not tie together based on the warnings of the book. But I want to I drive us forward about 100 years. Because when Assyria comes in, the threat to the southern kingdom is great. But Assyria doesn't overcome the southern kingdom. We talked about a man named Hezekiah who was a king. And Hezekiah is called a good king. Hezekiah listens to the Lord. And as Hezekiah obeys, he leads the people in obedience to God. And so the southern kingdom doesn't fall. You fast forward 100 years and Jeremiah is now a prophet to the southern kingdom. Israel is long gone. But the southern kingdom remains, and Jeremiah is a prophet, and he is preaching to a hard-hearted and rebellious people. And Jeremiah talks about destruction that is coming. And the priests and the false prophets want to put Jeremiah to death, because who would dare speak a word like that? But as Jeremiah preaches, and as they kind of put him on trial, some of the elders and some of the leading men, they say this, 
They say, Micah of Morasheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and he said to all the people, thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? Did, he not, did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? But we're about to bring great disaster on ourselves. In other words, they say a hundred years ago, Micah said the same thing. But Hezekiah listened. And the people listened. And God relented. Everything that God talks about in chapter, end of chapter 1 and chapter 2 that is going to come on Judah, they hear the warning. And like he did at Nineveh, God shows that he is faithful, that he is long-suffering, that he is slow to anger, that he is abounding in steadfast love. And just like he relented on that disaster toward Nineveh, God in perfect, consistent character relents on the disaster for his people and the southern kingdom carries on. It's good news to know that sometimes people listen. Even better to know that God is always faithful. That whether it's to Nineveh, Israel, Judah, when the people hear, when they repent and when they respond, God is faithful to restore. Now, God is also perfectly sovereign and wise, and that judgment that he promised to Judah would come. It would just come generations later to a generation that would not see and would not hear. But the call goes out. Turn to the faithful God who is abounding in steadfast love and mercy. And it's good for us to remember that that same abounding in mercy, steadfast God hears us today. Three quick things for us to think about as we close. First of all, what is a blessing? We use blessing all the time. And when you hear it, what are people talking about? What's the blessing? That they got the job? that they got the car, that she said yes, that you made the sale, that you got the A on the test, how blessed for all these things. When someone comes and steps on your toes and confronts your sin, is it ever a blessing? Am I willing to count that as a blessing? See, the only way that my mind actually works like that is if I'm concerned about the same things that God is. If my first thoughts are toward my comfort, then that's not a blessing. In fact, if my first thoughts and desires are toward my comfort, then a lot of what God does is not a blessing. Every trial, every heartache, every hardship is not a blessing. However, if my ultimate goal is to be more like the God who called me, to be more like Christ my Savior, then when someone warns me of sin, what a tremendous blessing because that's one of the tools that God uses to refine me. Then those circumstances that are crushing, that are difficult, that are heartbreaking, can be seen as a blessing because they're refining me to make me more like him. So as you go through your week, what do you call a blessing? Second, uh, what are our relationships reflecting? Do you realize that the way that you treat other people will be a reflection of your relationship to God? Israel and Judah were horrific in their treatment of the poor, the oppressed, the outsider, the outcast, and the other. And it was not because they didn't know. It was because they did not have any kind of a meaningful relationship with God. We think that somehow we can be good people this way and disasters this way. And it's nonsense. 
the way to love others is only through experiencing and understanding and responding to the vertical love that God has for us. And as we see God's love poured out upon us, only then are our hearts going to be generally prodded to love, genuinely prodded to love others well. And so, if like me, sometimes you think people are a bit much, perhaps that's because you forget that you're more than a bit much and that the merciful God of the universe has done much to cover your sin, to extend grace to you, to care for you and your need. Just a perspective that we lose sometimes. And finally, uh, the question, what do you want? More specifically, what do you want to hear? Many of you would probably rather me preach shorter. That's a different question. But what do you want me to tell you? What do you want the podcast that you listen to to tell you? The, the other preachers that I hope you listen to, what do you want them to tell you? Do you want to hear only the good things? Do you want to hear only about how God promises you everything you've ever wanted? Or do you want to hear about the God who above all calls you to himself and has predestined you to be conformed to the image of his beloved son? Because sometimes that means we have to talk about our sin. I don't like that. <laughs> but how good and gracious of God to tell me what I need to hear far more often than what I want to hear. Let's pray. Lord, you are good and patient. And as often as we read through the minor prophets, Lord, it is astounding to see that your steadfast love endures forever. You are perfectly faithful to a faithless people. And God, I pray that we don't look to insert ourselves in the story, but Lord, I pray that we see ourselves for who we truly are, so often fallen, faithless. Lord, make us faithful. Lord, make us obedient. Lord, make us sensitive to our sin. Help us to see those areas where we fall short, Lord. Don't let us be content with hearing the good things, with satisfying our conscience somehow, Lord. Help us to see where we are guilty and bring us to repentance. And Lord, as often as we genuinely repent, remind us of your perfect faithfulness. Lord, you spared Nineveh. Lord, you spared Judah. Lord, in your mercy, you spared us. Your wrath was poured out on the Son and not on me. What a remarkable truth. Lord, we worship you, the faithful God from generation to generation. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.